This is the story of freedom, liberty and equality. Are you free? What does it mean to be free? What is liberty? Are these things the same? What is it to be not free? Do you think you are free and actually not free? The objective of this podcast is to understand both the concept of freedom as well as the lack of freedom throughout human history. For a moment, imagine you were alive 2000 or 4000 years ago. What would you be doing? Would you be a farmer, a hunter-gatherer, raider, soldier? Worse, you might even be born a woman. Wherein many societies had a lot fewer opportunities for women than they did for men. Would you be a soldier fighting against raiders or invaders where your only option would be to fight to the death? or get captured and watch your family enslaved just before they slowly and brutally send you to your maker. You could be a male or female slave. Would you survive slavery? Could you watch your son sent to work in a mine and near certain death, and your daughter sent to be a concubine of some wealthy noble? Would you noto to others? Would you be strong enough to survive an illness, physical fists, fist fights, Disputes, a raid, hand-to-hand military combat, would you survive childbirth, both for the mother and the child? To me, freedom, or the illusion of both freedom or the lack of freedom, are part of the human experience. In this podcast, I want to dig a little deeper into the narrative that brought you and me to this point in time to understand freedom. Let's start with the good old days. The Istanbul Archaeology Museum's houses a document from the Sumerian king Ur-Namu. The document is a piece of stone with information etched into it. It is called, rather unsurprisingly, the Code of Ur-Namu. It is considered the earliest surviving written law code in history. It was created around 2100 B.C., that means it is at least 4,000 years old. So here we have information from someone that long ago. In it, he lists out his laws. Here's some I picked out. If a man commits a kidnapping, he is to be imprisoned and pay 15 shekels of silver. If a slave marries a slave and that slave is set free, he does not leave the household. If a slave marries a native, i.e. free person, he or she is to hand the firstborn son over to his owner. If a man violates the rights of another and deflowers the virgin wife of a young man, they shall kill that male. If the wife of a man followed after another man and he slept with her, they shall slay that woman, but that male shall be set free. If a man, preceded by force, deflowers the virgin female of another man, that man must pay five shekels of silver. Lipit Ishtar, a later Akkadian king, had a code inscribed around 1870 BC. In it, it says, If a slave girl or slave of a man has fled into the heart of the city, and it has been confirmed that he or she 
dwelt in the house of another man for one month, he shall give slave for slave. If he has no slave, he shall pay fifteen shekels of silver. If a man's slave has compensated his slaveship to his master, and it is confirmed that he has compensated his master twofold, that slave shall be freed. If a servant is the grant of a king, he shall not be taken away. Some centuries later, the code of King Humbarai, a better preserved Babylonian code of law from Mesopotamia, dated around 1754 BC, that currently sits in Paris's Louvre Museum, here's a taste of a few codes of that law. Talking about slavery and status of slaves as property. Law number 15. If anyone takes a male or female slave of the court, or a male or female slave of a freedman outside the city gates, he shall be put to death. On duties of workers. Law number 42. If anyone take over a field to till it, and to obtain no harvest therefrom, it must be proved that he did no work on the field, and he must deliver grain, just as his neighbour raised to the owner of the field. On theft, law number 22, if anyone is committing a robbery and is caught, then he shall be put to death. Aside from laying down the law, remember back in those days there was no police or criminal justice, there engraved into stone is the word slave. They are thus implying someone free versus someone not free, someone superior versus someone inferior, someone authoritative versus someone feeble. If these are just the surviving codes, we can infer that slavery was the conventional course of action back in the day. We can also assume that for ages past before that, and indeed for as long as societies settled or nomadic endured, we probably had free and non-free peoples. The English word slave itself comes from the word and the people known as Slavs. Slavs today are Russians, people in the Balkans and Eastern Europe. The reason the word moved into English as slave was because of the high number of Slavs who were used as property. Through history, we have determined there is some kind of freedom and some kind of no freedom. That freedom and lack thereof seems to come from other people. Nature-based lack of freedom isn't taken into account as much, i.e. disease, natural disasters, injury or animal attacks through restricted freedom never appear to enter into the narrative that shows lack of freedom. It only occurs when someone else is imposing a lack of freedom. I want to spend a few minutes looking at some definitions. The definition of freedom. When someone is free, they can choose to change something easily and is not constrained by a present state. Freedom is associated with having free will, I'll get to that later, plus being without undue or unjust constraints or enslavement. It is an idea closely related to the concept of liberty. Liberty is the ability to do as one pleases. A lot of people will use liberty as a synonym to freedom. Liberty is a state of being free within society from control or oppressive restrictions imposed by authority on one's way of life and behavior or political views. Unlike freedom, to me, liberty has a political dimension, also has a theological space 
in that you are at liberty to worship whoever or no one. The word is Latin in origin and comes from the Roman goddess Libertas. She is often associated with the god Liber, the free one, also known as Liber Pater, the free father, who was god of culture, wine, fertility and freedom. His festival of Libertilia became associated with free speech and the rights attached to coming of age. The term Liber is Proto-Indo-European in linguistic origin and means freedom. Determinism Determinism is all events including human action that are ultimately determined by causes external to the will. Some have even suggested that determinism implies humans have no free will and cannot be held morally responsible for their actions. Predetermination This is the philosophy that all events of history, past, present and future, have already been decided or are already known, including human actions. Compatibilism is the belief that free will and determinism are mutually compatible and that it is possible to believe in both without being logically inconsistent. Compatibilists believe freedom can be present or absent in situations for reasons that have nothing to do with metaphysics. They say casual determinism does not exclude the truth or possible future outcomes. Democracy. Democracy is a form of government in which the people have the authority to choose their governing legislator, also known as universal suffrage. It is ultimately a process verified by the membership, also citizens, to an entity such as a city or a country, etc. Democracy, therefore, is more a process. It's a process rather than a philosophy or a thought. It is a process. So it is slightly different, but important in this context that we understand the difference between democracy and the other lines of freedom that we're discussing. And then there's free will. So what is free will? In short, free will is the ability to choose between different possible courses of action unimpeded. So free will is the ability to choose between different possible courses of action unimpeded. Only actions that are freely willed are seen as deserving credit or blame. Whether a free will exists, what it is, and the implications of whether it exists or not are some of the longest-running debates of philosophy and religion. Now that we've got some of the definitions out of the way, let's examine what religion, or what the gods, say about free will. As I just mentioned, free will is the ability to choose between different possible courses of action unimpeded. However, this is too simplistic. And we need to dive into some theory to understand free will, so we can figure out if there is such a thing as free will. Free will, after all, lies at the core of freedom and liberty. Let's start with Hinduism. There are conflicting schools of thought in Hinduism on this topic. The Samakya school, for instance, says, Matter is without any freedom, and the soul lacks any ability to control the unfolding of matter. The only real freedom consists in realizing the ultimate separation of matter and self. 
the yoga school believes only Ishvar is truly free. And freedom is also distinct from all feelings, thoughts, actions or wills and is thus not at all freedom of will. Now, schools strongly suggest a belief in determinism but do not seem to make explicit claims about determinism or free will. Swami Vivekananda, a prominent 19th century philosopher, suggested, We see at once that there cannot be any such thing as free will. The very words are a contradiction, because will is what we know, and everything that we know is within our universe. And everything within our universe is moulded by conditions of time, space and casuality. To acquire freedom, we have to get beyond the limitations of this universe. It cannot be found here. Vivekananda says, Will was not free because the law of cause and effect influenced it. And I quote again, The will is not free. It is a phenomenon bound by cause and effect. But there is something behind the will which is free. It is the coward and the fool who says this in his fate. But it is strong man who stands up and says, I will make my own fate. In Hinduism broadly, good deeds mean good things may happen to you, and similarly in the other direction. Here is a famous quote from the epic story Mahabharat, suggesting that your actions impact your life quality. And I quote, As a man himself sows, so he himself reaps. No man inherits the good or evil act of another man. The fruit is of the same quality as the action. Let's look at Buddhism. According to the Buddha, and I quote, There is free action, there is retribution, but I see no agent that passes out from one set of momentary elements to another one, except the connection of those elements. Buddhists believe in neither absolute free will nor determinism. They believe in dependent origination or dependent arising. In other words, all dharma, i.e. phenomena, arise in dependence upon other dharmas. If this exists, that exists. If this ceases to exist, that ceases to exist. In Buddhism, it is taught that the idea of absolute freedom of choice is unwise because it denies the reality of one's physical needs and circumstances. Equally incorrect is the idea that humans have no choice in life or that their lives are completely predetermined. Moses ben Mayam, I've got that wrong, I know, known as Maimonides, was a Jewish philosopher in the 1100s from North Africa. He suggested that human beings have free will. In choosing to do good or evil, without free will, the demands of the prophets would have been meaningless. There would be no need for the Torah, and justice could not be administrated. Henceforth, he believed that God grants human free will as part of the universe's overall plan. Let's look at Christianity. In Christianity, free will, in Christian sense, is the ability to choose between good or evil. 
The Council of Trent, it was a 19th century council of the Catholic Church, declared that, and I quote, the free will of man, moved and excited by God, can by its consent cooperate with God, who excites and invites its action, and that it can thereby dispose and prepare itself to obtain the grace of justification. The will can resist grace if it chooses. It is not like a lifeless thing which remains purely passive, weakened and diminished by Adam's fall. Free will is yet not destroyed in the race. In the Bible, Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The Apostle Paul said, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to all kind of intention of his will. What this means is, mortals, you and I, have limited freedom, or limited free will. The 13th century philosopher Thomas Aquinas viewed humans as pre-programmed to seek certain goals, but able to choose between routes to achieve those goals. His view has been associated with both compatibilism and libertarianism. In free choice, he argued, that humans are governed by intellect, will and passions. The will is the primary mover of all the powers of the soul, and it is also the efficient cause of motion in the body. Free will, therefore, is an appetitive power. Moving on to Islam. In Islam, Al-Ashari, a noted influential Sunni Muslim thinker in the early 900s AD, developed an acquisition or dual agency form of compatibilism, in which human free will and divine power were both asserted. Most Shia Muslims believe that Allah, or God, has ultimate control of the world, but that people's lives are down to their own free will. Shia Muslims believe that God knows what will happen, but that doesn't mean that He decides it. They believe that God can see everything that happens, past, present, and future. So there is an element of predetermination in this particular belief here. According to the doctrine, free will is the main factor for man's accountability in his or her actions throughout life. Actions taken by people exercising free will are counted on the day of judgment because they are their own. However, the free will happens with God's permission. That's some of the main religions covered. But what about science? What does science say? Is there free will in nature? We're going to examine this in five parts. Physics, neuroscience, psychology, genetics, and experimental psychology. We'll start with physics. So in physics, physics tries to address the question of whether nature is deterministic, which is viewed as crucial by incompatibilists. Compatibilists, on the other hand, view it as irrelevant. Quantum mechanics predicts events only in terms of probabilities, casting doubt on whether the universe is deterministic at all, although the evolution of the universal state vector is completely deterministic. What you should take away from that statement is that, ultimately, probability equals randomness, and the universe is ultimately random, and you cannot be predicted but can be assumed under probability. 
under neuroscience. So although free will can be defined in various ways, all of them involve aspects of the way people make decisions and initiate actions, which have been studied extensively by neuroscientists. Some of the experimental observations are widely used, viewed as implying that free will does not exist or is an illusion. Benjamin Libet, a neuroscientist, found that the unconscious brain activity of the readiness potential leading to subject's movement began approximately half a second before the subject was aware of a conscious intention to move, meaning the thought starts before the action. Psychologists would contend that there are enough data points to say that we are not always free. And in any case, not necessarily free in the same way every single time we make a choice. In different situations, also based on our explicit and conscious efforts, our degree of freedom can also vary. Let's look at genetics. Biologists have frequently addressed the question related to free will. One of the most heated debates in biology is that of nature versus nurture concerning the relative importance of genetics in biology as compared to culture and environment in human behavior. The general view of many researchers is that many human behaviors can be explained in terms of humans' brain, genes, and evolutionary histories. And lastly, we look at experimental psychology. What do experimental psychologists say? Well, Daniel Wegner wrote a book called The Illusion of Conscious Will. You can tell by that title what he's, where he's going. He summarizes some empirical evidence that may suggest that the perception of conscious control is open to modification, i.e. manipulation. Wagner observes that one event is inferred to have caused a second event when two requirements are met. So where are we so far? Just a quick recap. So far, we have looked at how, even in the earliest periods of history, human writing contained concepts of freedom and lack of freedom, explained in physical and psychological terms. We then outline the broad definitions of freedom, liberty, determinism, etc., before examining the religious beliefs on free will. We then looked at the scientific explanations around free will. For a minute here, let's go back to free will and the definition of free will. And I quote, Only actions that are freely willed are seen as deserving of credit or blame. Whether free will exists, what it is, and what the implications of whether it exists or not are some of the longest-running debates of philosophy and religion. In short, free will is the ability to choose between different possible courses of action. The science says randomness and the way the brain and human behavior actually works demonstrates that we have limited or no such freedom, and oftentimes it is an illusion. Now looking at nature, nurture, and our environment. The nature versus nurture debate asks if human behavior is determined by the environment, either before birth or during a person's life, or by a person's genes. Some studies of twins separated at birth helped provide some insight into the debate about nature versus nurture. It was observed that even identical twins 
who are reared apart from birth and had the same chance of being as similar in behavioral and psychological traits as two twi- as twins who were raised together. For me, the environment matters. Your freedom is based not just on your genes, but your ability to choose freely. Importantly, the mirage of that choice then gives you the hallucination of free will, whether you have free will or not. Let me break this down. What could shape us? Language, our abilities versus our disabilities, life experiences, gender, what we see around us, others we interact with, habits, religion or no religion, our occupation. There are too many things in our immediate environment that shape our behavior and habits, probably even the weather. The long-lost twin of Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, growing up as a fisherman in Brazil, would have been very different from the one that we know grew up on Corsica. Let's take another example. A school teacher in Syria before its civil war, assume had a decent middle class life. However, after the conflict started, he or she might have moved to a refugee camp in Jordan, where they would have had to adapt to a new life. Their free will, freedom to choose, and determine their own fate changed. Not because they changed biologically, but their environment changed. The choice they made was to flee. They still had the choice to go back or go elsewhere, but they opt to stay in the refugee camp. They opt to live in an environment where they have limited choice, but that choice is theirs. They still remember their old life, maybe even horrors of war, but opt to adapt to the new life. Let us take this one step further. Imagine that teacher we're talking about has a child that grows up in the refugee camp. After 20 years, that child is an adult who knows life only in that camp. They hear stories of their parents' old life. Just imagine the environment. That's their paradigm. Their friends, their setting, all different from that of their parents. Maybe that is their new home now. But their choices, freedoms, and life decisions are limited by the environment, by their environment, their paradigm. They do not know the parents' life and their different options for freedom. We are limited by our environment. We are free within the confines of what we know. We may assume someone else is less free than us, but that person may not think that of themselves. Our environment gives us that illusion of freedom. Now I'm going to confuse you all and turn all of that on its head. Maybe you know when you're not free. We all might believe that our freedom is an illusion. Maybe, just maybe. Maybe we also know when we're not free. To tackle this issue, I'm going to look very briefly at 10 events from history to determine to help us to determine what it is like to not have your freedom or to have your options curtailed these 10 are spartacus versus rome haiti versus france 
John Lilliburn and the Levelers, Worker Rights, Pankhurst and the Suffragettes, Slave Stories from the US, Dr. Ambedkar and the Dalits of India, Holocaust Survivor Stories, The Anti-Apartheid Movement, and Being Captured by ISIS. So let's start with number one, Spartacus versus the Romans. Spartacus lived about 111 to 71 BC. He was Thracian. Thracians were people that lived in Eastern Europe and Southeastern Europe, including modern Turkey. I've typically associated them with living in the Balkans and Anatolia, i.e. modern Turkey. At this point, the area was in the Roman Republic. Spartacus was probably born in the region around modern Bulgaria. Plutarch, a Roman Greek-speaking thinker in the Republic, described Spartacus as a Thracian of nomadic stock, possibly from the Medi tribe. Apian, a later Greek-speaking Roman historian, says Spartacus was a Thracian by birth who had once served as a soldier with the Roman army. There is also some work that says he had been a prisoner and sold for a gladiator, possibly because he deserted the army. His wife was enslaved with him. Spartacus is known for what historians refer to as a third servile war. That means it was the third such major uprising against the Republic. For context, the first such war, the first servile war, around 135 to 132 BC, was fought in Sicily, led by Eunice, a former slave claiming to be a prophet, and Celon from Sicilia. The second such war, the second servile war, around 104 to 100 BC, was in Sicily again, led by Athenian and Tryphon. The third servile war, the one we're talking about, 73 to 71 BC, was on mainland Italy, led by Spartacus. What made the Third War so much more impactful was that it left a legacy. It was a near-successful revolt, one that has gone down in history. The revolt began in 73 BC, with the escape of around 70 slave gladiators from a gladiator school. They defeated a small Roman force sent to recapture them. Within two years, they had been joined by some 120,000 men, women and children, The able-bodied adults of this band were a surprisingly effective armed force that repeatedly showed they could withstand or defeat the Roman military. Remember, over 30% of this region of Italy and close to 30% of the city of Rome were slaves. The Republic had expanded a lot in recent centuries and that led to an influx of captured slaves. Vast numbers of these slaves worked on farms and down mines, Working in a mine was possibly one of the worst jobs. Imagine the safety conditions. The good news is that the Romans were equal opportunity enslavers. They put anyone to work. All backgrounds were considered fair game. On the downside, most slaves perished by the age of 17 or 18. This is a society where, as long as you live to the age of 10, you had a 30-40% to chance of getting to your 60s. There were different kinds of slaves, such as debt slaves, prisons of war, many were gladiators, like our man Spartacus. I won't get into the details of the war. Suffice to say, the Roman legions eventually won. What we are interested in, what we are interested in, are the impact and aftermath. Spartacus himself displayed no intention of freeing the slaves. 
but he did create a mass movement that put the chills up the Romans enough for them to reform the way slavery worked in the Republic and then the Empire after the fall of the Republic. Records show that there was some drop in slave numbers and indeed a shortage of labour in the aftermath of the revolt. Spartacus even has a positive review in the Roman accounts. Future Roman historians have been kind to him. He showed the Romans that he and his army equaled them and bettered them in battle. Even today, many sports teams name themselves after him. FC Spartak Moscow, a football team, is probably the most popular. There are others. Also around about 2,000 odd years in the future, from this point, Karl Marx would list Spartacus as one of his heroes. Most importantly for us, Toussaint Lavron pronounced that completely wrong. A leader of the slave revolt that led to the independence of Haiti has been called the Black Spartacus. This leads us onto our next topic, Haiti versus France. The island of Hispaniola was initially part of the Spanish Empire. After a certain point, the Spanish focused on the eastern two-thirds of the island, leaving the remaining island to be settled by French buccaneers. Among them was Bertrand Durigan, who succeeded in growing tobacco and recruited many French colonial families from other French colonies. After the 1697 Treaty of Ruswick, France officially received the Western Third and subsequently named it Saint-Domingue. The crazy thing about this situation was that unlike Rome and Spartacus, the French settlers were outnumbered by slaves by almost 10 to 1. According to the 1788 census, Haiti's population consisted of nearly 25,000 Europeans, 22,000 free coloreds, and 700,000 African slaves. In the north of the island, slaves were able to retain many ties to African cultures, religion, and language. These ties were being reiterated by recently imported Africans. Some West African captives held on to their traditional voodoo beliefs by quietly mixing it with Catholicism. The French enacted the Code Noir, i.e. Black Code, prepared by Jean-Baptiste Colbert and ratified by Louis XIV, establishing rules on slave treatment and allowable freedoms. Saint-Domingue had been described as one of the most ruthlessly effective slave communities. Two-thirds of newly imported Africans died within a few years. Many many slaves died from diseases such as smallpox and typhoid fever. They They had low birth rates and there is evidence that some women aborted fetuses rather than give birth to children within the bonds of slavery. The colony's environment also suffered as forests were cleared to make way for plantations and the land was overworked to the extent maximum profit for the French plantation owners. In short, life was hell. The slave formed a majority and someone needed a light that sparks. Enter the French Revolution of 1789 and Thomas Paine's Rights of Man. By August 1791, the first slave armies were established in the northern Haiti under the leadership of Toussaint Lovron, and I'm saying that completely wrong, inspired by the voodoo hugan Bokman and backed by the Spanish in Saint Domingo next door. Soon, a full-blown slave rebellion had broken out across the entire colony. So what do you need to know about this? What you need to know 
is that this is possibly the only successful slave rebellion in history. Aside from some support from Spain, Haiti, after a bloody, very bloody revolution, won its independence, and that too from one of the most brilliant generals possibly ever, Napoleon Bonaparte. Not even recently independent, i.e. also slave-owning, the United States assisted, who were instead doing brisk business with Napoleon by buying Louisiana. This one, They won this by themselves on their own at that moment. At that moment, they were... F- now let's move on to John Lilburn and the Levelers. Although it sounds like it, John Lilburn and the Levelers are not a 1970s rock band. John was part of a movement in the 1640s of England that came to be known as the Levelers. The movement involved other people such as Richard Overton and William Walden. This movement took shape during the English civil wars of the 1640s. The word leveler applied to those in rural areas who had turned rebel and caused riots and other rebellions. In my view, these guys were about 150 years ahead of their time, or more. Some of the ideas they believed in included, number one, extension of suffrage to include almost all the adult male population, but excluding wage earners for reasons mentioned later. Two, electoral reform. Three, religious freedom and toleration of religious differences. Four, an end to imprisonment for debt. Five, abolition of corruption within the parliamentary and judicial process. Six, translation of law into the common tongue. Seven, hold fast to a notion of natural rights. Eight, liberty was an innate property of every person. Nine, levelers held to the doctrine of consent by participation in the choice of representatives. And ten, defended natural rights as coming from the law of God expressed in the Bible. Don't get too excited, though. Although this was likely the first time modern democratic intentions were formally devised and adopted by a political movement, it excluded household servants and those dependent upon charitable handouts from suffrage as levelers worried that needy subordinate men would only decide as their masters preferred. It also rejected women. Most adult women were wedded and as spouses or were legally and financially reliant on their husbands. Lilburn argued that English common law, particularly the Magna Carta, was the foundation of English rights and liberties. Lilburn also harked back to his writing of the notion of so-called Norman York, also the feudal system, that had been imposed on the English people and to some extent argued that the English were simply seeking to reclaim those rights that had been enjoyed before the Norman conquest of England in 1066. English common law, named because it was common to all the king's courts across England, originated in centuries following the Norman conquest. This is important because the British Empire later spread the English legal system to its colonies, many of whom retain the common law system today. These common law systems are legal systems that give great weight to judicial precedent and to the style of reasoning inherited from the English legal system, meaning one third of the planet observes their own branch of English common law mixed with local civil laws. It is this system of gradual laws that grants so many of the supposed rights and freedoms of the state many rely on. Then there's the Magna Carta, also known as the Great Charter of Freedoms, 
or the Great Charter. It is a royal charter of rights agreed to by King John of England in 1215 AD. Some important caveats need to be outlined. The document, though critically important, was an instrument to pacify the barons from fighting King John. So the rights in it were to their benefit, not designed for mass suffrage. The reason for its important is that tactically, the belief that the king is not divine or supreme. Let's move to worker rights. Communism and socialism are present-day topics that remain contested in politics and within academia. Implementing large-scale communist revolutions, as we saw in China or Russia, led to civil war with millions of fatalities. A complete collapse and rebuilding of society happened. In addition, as time advanced, it became clear that extensive corruption and authoritarian rule contaminated the philosophical Marxist ideology leading to the USSR to collapse in 1991 and China to become an authoritarian capitalist state after 1988 using the word communist largely in name only. The very implementations of Stalin's reforms in Russia and Mao's cultural revolution in China were in themselves an exercise in reduction of freedoms for their citizens. Millions died, millions of others languished. These events in of themselves afforded reduced freedoms in the guise of increased freedoms. Although Marx was the ultimate inspiration for these revolutions, he was not the guy implementing his assumptions. I even argue that Marx would have been horrified by what Stalin and Mao actually did in his name. However, there was one side effect of Marx and the revolutions of Russia, China and other countries, such as Cuba. It forced, it forced those outside these countries to adapt before they themselves would end up in a similar predicament. With economic worries, wars and pandemics burning through society in 1914 to 1945, many countries merged some ideas from Marx into their own capitalism. Countries such as India, the US, France, etc. all delivered worker rights into their laws. Let's dial back to the origins of Marxism, how and why it started. The Industrial Revolution in Europe had seen mass movements of people move from the villages to cities like Manchester. The population of these cities grew. The cities became centres of trade with other parts of the empire, creating a system of what ultimately became known as mercantile capitalism, where, very simply, you got raw materials from, say, Burma, then turned it into a product, selling them at a premium back into the empire. In short, you moved goods that were cheap in one place and sold it for a profit in another. Other than said capitalists, the taxman and the royals, not many people benefited. Not the colonies, but also not the worker in the factory who often worked in miserable conditions. Enter Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. The Communist Manifesto is an 1848 political document by German philosophers Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Published as the 1948 revolutions in Europe were blowing up, the French Revolution had happened and the Enlightenment was in full swing. Marx and Engels wrote about the ongoing class struggle. In capitalism, they argued, the industrial working class, or proletariat 
engage in class struggle against the owners of the means of production, i.e. the bourgeoisie. The Communist Party will not oppose other working class parties. However, it will express the general will and defend the common interests of the world's proletariat as a whole, independent of nationalities. What is important about the Manifesto is that it ultimately led to 150 years and counting of major world history. Only religious texts such as the Christian Bible has had this much influence. It was because of this book that we saw the 1905 and 1917 revolutions in Russia, ultimately creating the USSR. The Chinese Revolution, Cuba's Revolution, those in South and Central America, in Africa, Europe, among so many more. Additionally, many places saw communist influences, not necessarily revolutions. More so, we witnessed the socialist and labor movements at scale worldwide, gather steam. Often, these movements came to power in governments, such as in the UK in 1924, or via union membership. This led to worker movements and worker rights going mainstream. Soonish, people had better working conditions and employment holidays, etc. These are the things that people take for granted today in many countries and are accepted part of many modern capitalist cultures. It originated, ultimately, from a Marxist belief system. Let's move from Marx and Engels to Emmeline Pankhurst and the suffragettes. In 1906, a reporter writing for the Daily Mail, well, today in 2020, the Daily Mail is a tabloid gossip phenomenon, but the Daily Mail back then coined the term suffragette for the British Women's Social and Political Union, or WSPU. From suffragettist to despise the women advancing women's suffrage. The demonstrators, however, adopted the new name, even choosing it for usage as the name of their WPSU publication. In short, a suffragette was a member of an activist women's organization in the early 20th century who, under the banner Votes for Women, fought for the right to vote in public elections. By this time, some British territories such as New Zealand, South Australia and the Isle of Man had already granted full suffrage. Emmeline Pankhurst was its founding member. The initial movement started back in 1865 when John Stuart Mill, the famous English classical liberal thinker, was elected to Parliament on a platform that included votes for women. For women. In 1869, he published his essay in favour in favor of equality of the sexes called The Subjugation of Women. The movement gathered much steam, but eventually fizzled out when World War I broke out in 1914. On 6th of February, the Representation of the People Act 1918 was passed, enfranchising all men over 21 years of age and all women over the age of 30 who met minimum property qualifications, gained the right to vote for about 8.4 million women. In November of the same year, November 1918, the Parliament Qualification of Women Act 1918 was passed, allowing women to be elected into Parliament. The Representation of the People Act in 1928 extended the voting franchise to all women over the age of 21, granting women the vote on the same terms that men had gained 10 years earlier. These acts in Britain and elsewhere 
upturned something like 10,000 plus years of history where women were not afforded the same rights as men when it came to political activity, property ownership, and legal status. Moving on to slave stories from the United States. In the US, race-based slavery existed until 1865, while a segregated apartheid system was in place until 1965. For this section, I found accounts of actual slaves from the time. I'll quote a few accounts. Let's start with Thomas Brown. He said, and I quote, I was severely punished by a broad cut full of holes to raise the blisters. Then I was whipped with a strap to burst the blisters, which were then salted and peppered. This burned me very badly, end quote. This South Carolina slave had escaped and hidden in nearby woods, but had been found by bloodhounds and brought back. And he quoted, I never tried to run away again. Bill Collins, he said, My master was so cruel to his slaves that they were almost crazy at times. He would buckle us across a log and whip us until we were unable to walk for three days. On Sunday, we would go to the barn and pray to God to fix some way for us to be freed from our mean masters. Collins added, he said, My mother was sold away from me. I was so lonesome without her that I would often go about my work and cry and look for her return, as I was told by some of the slaves that she would be brought back to me, but she never came back. William Haynes, he wrote or said, The worst thing about slavery was selling the slaves on the auction block like they were cattle. Haynes added that once the word of emancipation arrived, it had tragic results for a slave named Clora, who was told of it by a white boy. Clora's master saw her, saw her talking to the boy and asked if he'd said anything about emancipation. She denied it. Haynes added, Then her master tied her across a barrel and whipped her until she died. The master's girls begged for Clora, but it did no good. He then whipped the boy until he died. The white boy's mother cried and begged for her son's life, but it did no good. That was a very miserable crime. The woman, as well as the men, had to work in the fields, chopping and picking cotton. The only pay was a whipping. Mark Slater, he said, They would pray to say, O Lord, lift the yoke of bondage of us, that we may serve God under our own vine and fig tree. And O Lord, control old master's temper, so he would not be so mean to us. Jake Leaney said, we were not cruelly treated, but after freedom, I could see that slavery was the worst thing that a race could experience. Let's move on to Dr. Ambedkar and the Dalits of India. The term Dalit was in use as a translation to the British Raj era census designations of depressed classes prior to 1935. The British simply did not have a word for it in English. Dalit was ultimately socialized by the economist, reformer, come constitutional expert, B. R. Ambedkar, born 1891, died 1956, who suggested the inclusion of all depressed peoples, irrespective of caste, into the definition 
of the word Dalit. Dalit is a Sanskrit word. In classical Sanskrit, it means divided, split, broken, scattered. This word was repurposed in the 19th century to mean not belonging to one of the four Brahminic castes. It was perhaps first used in this sense by a Pune-based social reformer, Jyotirao Pule, in the context of the oppression faced by the erstwhile untouchable non-castes from the others. The government of India uses the term scheduled caste to refer to these communities. As we record this at the end of 2020, scheduled caste communities exist across India. Although they are mostly concentrated in some states, they do not share a single language or religion. They comprise around 17% of the national population, according to the 2011 census. Similar communities are found throughout the rest of South Asia, in Nepal, Pakistan, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, and a part of the global Indian diaspora. In 1932, the British government recommended separate electorates to elect leaders for Dalits. This was favoured by Ambedkar, but when Mahatma Gandhi opposed the proposal, it resulted in the Pune Pact. That, in turn, influenced the Government of India Act 1935, which introduced the reservation of seats for the depressed classes, re-termed scheduled castes. What made the Indian experience so much more complex and different was that rather than race or economics, this experience was based on social status and cultural norms. The Dalits or untouchables through hundreds of years since around 400 AD had established norms in their interaction with castes of supposedly higher status. As Indian independence was being discussed in the 1930s, one of its main leaders and also the chap that wrote the constitution, was Dr. Ambedkar, he himself being a Dalit. In his autobiography, Waiting for a Visa, he says he tried to find ways to make a living for his growing family. He worked as a private tutor, as an accountant, and established an investment consulting business. But it failed when his clients learned that he was untouchable. Thereafter, he became professor of political economy in Sandhyam College of Commerce and Economics in Mumbai. Although he was successful with the students, some professors actually objected to his sharing drinking water jugs with him. Why? Because of his status. Eventually, Ambedkar converted to Buddhism and encouraged his followers to do likewise. He rejected the Hindu texts such as the laws of Manu. Now let's look at some Holocaust survivor stories. I've got some stories here from the 1930s and 1940s. Let's start with Goldie, Goldie Finkelstein. When Goldie was 13 in March 1943, she and her older sister were grabbed off the street by the Nazis to be sent to a forced labor camp. Her father was able to bribe the authorities to release his daughters, but when they got to the gate to be freed, a senior Nazi SS officer said to the father, two sisters, only one may go. You must choose. With her father unable to choose, Goldie volunteered to stay and for her sister to go home. Goldie was sent alone to a slave labour camp called Garben, where she and other young women were forced to manufacture textiles for the Nazi military. Goldie survived a death march in the winter of 1945 from Garben 
to the concentration camp Bergen-Belsen, where she was liberated on April 15, 1945. She learned after liberation that her entire family had been deported to Auschwitz in August 1943, where they were gassed and burnt within hours of arrival. Goldie was left alone at 15 years old, the sole survivor of her immediate and extended family. Steffi Altman Born Safriza Frisbaum to Smaja and Yitschak Frisbaum in Lubin, in Poland, on 15th of May 1926, Steffi was the third of four children, living within the bustling heart of Polish culture and politics. The Frisbaum's large and joyful family enjoyed a boisterous life full of happy memories. It was not until the 1939 German invasion of Poland that this contented family's world was changed forever. Because of their Jewish faith, the Fischbombs were ordered from their homes. Older brothers, Welv and Moshe, were seized and placed in the nearby concentration camp where they were viciously abused and later murdered. Meanwhile, the remaining family walked 18 miles to Mozinski in Poland, seeking refuge in a barn. Steffi was separated from her family and with the help of a teacher and Catholic priest was given a false identity and sent to the Jatskov labor camp. When the Nazis discovered Steffi was Jewish, she was beaten and taken to jail and the priest, her only friend, was hanged for his humanitarian efforts. She later learned that 35 members of her family were killed along with approximately 2,000 other Jews in the small town of Belize. For nearly five years, Steffi was imprisoned in several concentration camps, including Treblinka, Majdenk, and Dorska. I'm pronou- hopefully I'm pronouncing those right. At each location, she witnessed horrifically haunting images of human suffering and endured starvation, beatings, and poor living conditions. In Dorosha, Steffi was briefly reunited with her one remaining relative, her sister Kayla, Though careful not to show affection and therefore garner any attention of her heartless captors, Steffi was cheered by the presence of her sweet sister. However, in an act so sadistic, she shortly thereafter witnessed the brutal murder murder of her beloved sibling. Daringly, Steffi eventually escaped from the camp by hiding amongst a group of travelling civilians and then dashing into the Polish wilderness. Had she stayed behind, she doubtless would have been one of the 20,000 inmates murdered in one of the deadliest single massacres of the Holocaust. Instead, she wandered from town to town, hiding from Nazi soldiers and informants. Eventually, a kind-hearted farmer placed Steffi with another Jewish family hiding in a makeshift cave within his barn in the small rural village of Plowski. There she remained barely surviving until Soviet, liber- until Soviet liberators freed the area in 1944. Sylvia Indig Sylvia was born in Grodzik in Poland and at a very young age working with her father Herschel and mother Sina in their bakery and bar business in the city square. When she was 13 years of age, the Nazi army invaded Poland and occupied her hometown along with the rest of Poland. At the age of 16, she was sent along with her parents and younger brother David to the Warsaw Ghetto, with the rest of the town's 6,000 members Jewish population for eventual extermination. 
At its height, the Warsaw Ghetto imprisoned approximately 400,000 Jews confined to a 1.3 square mile area, all of whom were awaiting transportation to the death camp. The Warsaw Ghetto was a fortress from which almost no prisoners ever escaped. She became reacquainted with her future husband, Morris Indig, whom she had met earlier when her aunt married Morris's older brother. At the Warsaw Ghetto train station, while awaiting transport to the to certain death, Sylvia recognized a German officer whose home she had been ordered by the Nazis to clean days before and told Morris that she knew the German. Morris quickly befriended the officer and together both Sylvia and Morris avoided the boxcar transport but were unable to additionally secure the release of her father, mother and younger brother from the train. Sylvia was separated from her family that day. The rest of her family was taken by train to the death camp. She never saw or heard from them ever again. When the Warsaw Ghetto had been liquidated down to 40,000 Jews, the same German officer helped both Sylvia and Morris escape the ghetto. Sylvia and Morris then fled south to the farm of the Polish Catholic Gudzik family, who at the risk of their own lives and the lives of their children hid them, along with, their Mor- along with Morris's brother Maya Indig, sister Pauline Muller and brother-in-law Alexander Muller. In the loft of their barn and sustained the five people in hiding with food and shelter for over 26 months until the liberation of Poland by the Russian army. Leon Medowitz. From an early age, Leon had longed to be a doctor, but anti-Semitism was rampant and if even with exemplary grades, he was initially denied admission to medical school. He began to p- pursue a career in accounting. On September the 1st, 1939, his hometown, hometown of Weilun, a city without military or industrial targets, was bombed by the Nazis, igniting World War II. With uncles, he travelled to Lodez, but escaped on 30th of April 1940, a day before Jews were detained in a ghetto. He returned to Weilun, where Jews were being signed to clear rubble and were gradually being shipped out to labour camps. He escaped town in May 1942 with his cousin, Jeshua, both disguised as farmers with, with a pitchfork in hand. Leon's fluency in German alerted him to dangers from soldiers who had overrun Poland. They arrived in Czeskowa in Poland, where they were eventually arrested with several thousand Jews and transferred to a labour camp to work in a munitions factory. Leon's father was arrested at the border of Poland and Czechoslovakia and never seen again. His mother, his mother and brother Moshe, aged 11, were arrested in Wilion and sent to Tribinka concentration camp. He never saw them again. To the end of his life, Leon was able to describe vividly the liberation of his camp in 1945. Waking up to the deep silence of his camp deserted overnight by German soldiers and the relief of seeing Russian soldiers enter. Now let's look at the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. Apartheid was a system of institutionalized racial segregation that existed in South Africa and Southwest Africa, now Namibia, from 1948 until the early 1990s. Apartheid was marked by a strict political practice based on Basap or white supremacy, 
which warranted that South Africa was governed politically, socially, and economically by the nation's minority white population. According to this system of social layers, white citizens had the highest status, followed by Asians and coloreds, then black Africans. The economic legacy and social effects of apartheid continue to the present day. The first apartheid law was the Prohibition of Mixed Marriages Act in 1949, followed closely by the Immorality Amendment Act of 1950, which made it illegal for most South African citizens to marry or pursue sexual relationships across racial lines. The Population Registration Act in 1950 classified all South Africans into one of four racial groups based on appearance, known as ancestry, socioeconomic status, and cultural lifestyle, black, white, coloured, and Indian. Eventually, the government entered into talks with the African National Congress, or, or ANC, modelled on the Indian National Congress, to discuss majority rule. Apartheid was dismantled, dismantled in a series of negotiations from 1990 to 1991, culminating in a transitional period which resulted in the country's 1994 general election, the first in South Africa held with universal suffrage. This was in no small part due to South African President F.W. de Klerk who introduced his reforms. Over time, Mandela embraced socialism and began reading Karl Marx, slowly wanting to follow the classless society espoused in the Communist Manifesto. Following the first of such elections, the ANC was elected into government and Nelson Mandela became President of South Africa. If there is a single speech that defined the man, this one is it. Mandela in 1964 while he was in the dock for a trial, said, I quote, I have fought against white domination. I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to see realized, but it needs to be, it is for an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Let's move on. Captured by ISIS. Nadia Murad was abducted with other Yazdi women in August 1914, when their home village of Kocho in Sinjar, northern Iraq, was attacked by ISIS. Captured alongside her sisters, she lost six brothers and her mother. She was awarded the 2018 Nobel Peace Prize jointly with Congolese gynecologist Dennis Mugawi. Her autobiography, The Last Girl, My Story of Captivity and My Fight Against the Islamic State, highlights what happened to her. Nadia eventually escaped her ISIS captors. She was smuggled out of Iraq and in early 2015 went as a refugee to Germany. Later that year, she began to campaign to raise awareness of human trafficking. Here is a snippet of her own accounts from her book. I'm quoting, The slave market opened at night. We could hear the commotion downstairs where militants were registering and organizing. And when their first man entered the room, all the girls started screaming. It was like the scene of an explosion. We moaned as though wounded, doubling over and vomiting on the floor. But none of it stopped the militants. They paced around the, around the room, staring at us. While we screamed and begged, they gravitated towards the most beautiful girls first, asking, how old are you? And examining their hair and mouths. They are virgins, right? 
They asked a guard who nodded and said, of course, like a shopkeeper taking pride in his product. Now the militants touched us anywhere they wanted, running their hands over our breasts and our legs as if we were animals. It was chaos while the militants placed the room, scanning girls and asking questions in Arabic or the Turkmen languages. End quote. So I've thrown 10 stories at you, all the way from Spartacus to something as recently as six years before this recording in ISIS. Let's just dial back to freedom. Think about this. Majority rule in South Africa was 1994. World War II ended in 1945. The Dalits got freedoms enshrined into law in 1947. Slavery in the US was abolished in 1865. Women got rights to vote in the UK in 1928. Worker rights started to get socialized after 1848. The levelers were around in the 1640s. Haiti became independent in 1804. Spartacus was around in 111 BC. Nadia's story happened no more than six years prior to recording this podcast. We may or may not have free will, but we do know when liberty, equality and freedom escape us to the point of making individuals desperate for something better. I only highlighted 10 stories from all of human history. I did not touch on, for example, the serfs of Tsarist Russia, Japan's occupation of Korea or Manchuria, Genghis Khan's invasions, the Roman incursions on the Gauls, Ashoka's aggression on Kalinga. The list goes on. These are just the known ones. Is your freedom contingent on someone else's lack of freedom? Or are those that think they are also free not actually free? They just don't know it. There are a few other things that often get associated with freedom. They are democracy, a free press, a free press, choice-based capitalism, and the rule of law. However, these are processes, and someone can feel unfree inside those arrangements. Someone can also be free in technically non-free societies. Environment and mindset matters. Freedom can be something as simple as human gut feeling. You know when you're not free, but can debate at length about free will when you are free. We all want to be free within a framework. We do not, do not want freedom so much that our security is threatened. I scratched my head and identified five environmental and understandable ingredients concerning symbolizing our freedom. Consider it some basics. So number one, you need shelter. You need to be able to live without fear of physical or psychological aggression. It gives you freedom at home through privacy. Number two, food and clean drinking water. Food security is critical. It gives you the potential to endure another day. Sanitary living conditions. You need to be able to eliminate dirty waste from your home so it remains clean, reducing the possibility of disease. Four, medicine and medical treatment. You need to have medical care when required. Without healthcare, you are in danger of losing your health, possibly your life. And lastly, number five, you need dignity or some respect for you and your family. This often manifests itself into social, cultural and political freedom. At the start of the podcast, I made the point that through history, we have determined there is some kind of freedom and some kind of no freedom. That freedom and lack thereof seems to come from other people. Nature-based lack of freedom isn't considered, in inverted commas, as bad as human forced lack of freedoms. 
we somewhat accept nature-based lack of freedoms, i.e. disease, natural disasters, injury, or animal attacks. Though it restricts freedom, it never appears to enter the narrative that shows lack of freedom, and that is why the last bullet, dignity, means so much to so many. I'll end by listing out a few quotes on freedom. These are people who have thought about this their entire lives. No one outside ourselves can rule us inwardly. When we know this, we become free, the Buddha. Everything can be taken from a man but the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's own way. Viktor Frankl What is freedom of expression without freedom to offend? It ceases to exist. Salman Rushdie Freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Martin Luther King Jr. Liberty means responsibility. That is why most men dread it. George Bernard Shaw You can chain me, you can torture me, you can even destroy this body, but you will never imprison my mind. Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi Democracy is a charming form of government, full of variety and disorder, and dispensing a lot of equality to equals and unequals alike. Plato Finally, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. George Orwell Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information, I am on Substack, thesinner.substack.com. If you'd like to support me, subscribe, and you will get the transcripts for my podcasts through the subscription. The podcasts themselves will always remain free.